The actual murder transpired with the quiet and simplicity of any communist occurrence. The bursting of a bud or pod in the growth of vegetation, for instance. Through the general hum following the stage pause, with the change of positions came the muffled sound of a pistol shot, which not one hundredth part of the audience heard at the time, and yet a moment's hush. Somehow, surely a vague, startled thrill. And then, through the ornamented, drapiered, starred and striped spaceway of the President's box, a sudden figure. A man raises himself with hands and feet, stands a moment on the railing, leaps below to the stage, a distance of perhaps 14 or 15 feet, falls out of position, catching his boot heel in the copious drapery, the American flag, falls on one knee, quickly recovers himself, rises as if nothing had happened, he really sprains his ankle but unfelt then. And so the figure, Booth, the murderer, dressed in plain black broadcloth, bareheaded, with a full head of glossy raven hair, and his eyes like some mad animals, flashing with light and resolution, yet with a certain strange calmness, holds aloft in one hand a large knife, walks along not much back from the footlights, turns fully toward the audience, his face of statuesque beauty lit by those basilisk eyes, flashing with desperation, perhaps insanity, launches out in a firm and steady voice the words, Sic Semper Tyrannis, and then walks with neither slow nor very rapid pace, diagonally across to the back of the stage, and disappears. Sic Semper Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants, and it implies that bad and just outcomes befall tyrants. However, this was the description written by the American poet Walt Whitman on the death, on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading and it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Today we have an enduringly popular subject to discuss, assassination. Schoolboys delight in discovering the connection between marijuana, hashish, and the Nizari Ismaili crack troops known as assassins, whether or not this is factually accurate. For me, the idea that Neil from The Young Ones or some other superannuated hippie might transform with a couple of puffs on a Kingston carrot into an invincible warrior seems doubtful. What is not in doubt is that assassination is the murder of an important person for mainly political, religious, financial or military reasons. From ancient Rome to American presidents it has been the threat that hangs over those at the top of society and government. It is illustrated by the fate of William Rufus, killed in mysterious circumstances in 1100, by an arrow to the chest whilst hunting in the New Forest. It is also featured that many assassination attempts fail, look no further than the multiple efforts to bump off Adolf Hitler without success. So, Jamie... Tell us why assassination can succeed as a catalyst for regime change and war. It can have a huge impact or it can have no impact at all. 
I think the big difference is whether you assassinate a despot or a democratic leader. And generally, you can say that to assassinate a democratic leader has less of an impact. It tends to not lead to regime collapse. It tends not to lead to war. There's more resilience, if you like, more reserves built into a democratic system because there's always another democratic leader there. If you assassinate a tyrant, you look at the Caesars, for example, there were over a dozen assassinations of Roman emperors. And there was a philosophical context, if you like. There was this concept of tyrannicide, that it was a moral thing to do. But quite often, there's a bigger bastard waiting in the wings. Or you get civil war. You look at what happened when Saddam Hussein died or when Gaddafi died. But what we're really talking about is the lightning bolt, the bolt from the blue, you know, a terror act against a political figure mainly, rather than just murder when they're captured. And that can have a profound impact, particularly in a despotic regime, particularly when there isn't democracy. Well, there are many ways to assassinate somebody. It seems like in the past it went from uh, poison and dagger, and in the modern period it's more to do with pistols. But let's uh, have a few examples of assassination. Well, you get quite exotic ways of assassination, uh, particularly in the modern age when there are so many different sorts of poisons and nerve agents and everything else. But you go back to 2001, September 2001, when Amar Massoud, the Lion of the Panjshir, the de facto head of the Northern Alliance, really, was killed by al-Qaeda. They turned up, two people posing as journalists from London, being sent to interview him, and he was delighted to talk to them. I mean, this was a PR campaign. It was important that they got the message out, the anti-Taliban, anti-Al-Qaeda message out. So he met them, and they had a bomb in their camera, and Massoud was killed. And he was a great leader, and that had a huge impact because he was such an iconic figure. In fact, a friend of mine had once given him a book on Clausewitz, and he had never heard of Clausewitz, and he was then interviewed a year later and was asked, is there someone who has influenced you over the years? And he went, oh, Clausewitz. <laughs> a throwaway line. I think yeah. I've got an abridged version in the loo downstairs well, for it, anyone who wants to refer to it. It always sounds great. It makes you sound learned. It makes you sound as if you're this amazing military strategist. Exactly. I don't think he ever got to the end of his theories, did he? He kept writing them and changing them. I, I, I suspect Masood never got to the end of the book either. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, and other examples later on in the, the noughties? Well, 2009, you got an extraordinary assassination attempt, and this one failed. And, and of course, so many assassination attempts fail because there are so many variables and the target doesn't quite do what you want it to do. And this was Abdullah al-Asiri, who was an al-Qaeda terrorist and he spent a long time trying to cultivate links and get himself close to the deputy interior minister in Saudi Arabia. And he actually put a one-pound bomb up his own arse, which was probably a mistake because he got to shake hands with the Saudi minister. And he had been with the bodyguards of that Saudi minister, I think, for a, an entire day. So it must have been pretty uncomfortable. He was probably walking but like John Wayne by the end. 
but he detonated the bomb. The Saudi minister was just left holding the hand. So <laughs> it just went horribly wrong. That, that's what I call an extreme bowel movement. I knew, I knew it was coming. I was just waiting to see what it was. You just couldn't resist There's it. some suppository. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so... You the know, pun but, police will be out in force <laughs> if we're not careful. There'll be an edit. But, so you can see the, 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 the sort of thought processes that go into it and the ingenuity occasionally. Then in 2017, you got the attack on uh, Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of the North Korean leader, on his orders, of course. And the two girls who participated, who carried it out, uh, later got off were acquitted by saying they thought they were on a reality tv show that's the madness we're in today and what well, they spread the nerve agent vx in some cream on his face uh, they did they ran up to him and, and and put it on his face but it seems to me that in order to avoid being affected by the vx themselves they would have had jabs beforehand so it seems a bit odd that they were acquitted um, one was an indonesian one was a vietnamese but that's again shows the sort of level, the sort of way that assassination attempts have adapted away from the traditional bomb and bullet. But really, it is the traditional bomb and bullet that uh, is the usual way to carry this out. Yes, unless you're William Rufus in eleven hundred, who got the arrow in his chest. But again, it's the law of unforeseen consequences. He was not popular, and the person who took over, his younger brother, Henry I, was a fantastic king and rolled back some of the more oppressive Norman measures and ended up reintroducing a lot of the Anglo-Saxon values and laws that had been suppressed under the Normans. So, you know, you never quite know which direction things will go after an assassination. And there were a myriad of attempts on British monarchs, European monarchs, over the centuries. It came with the territory, really, didn't it? I mean, uh, as an example, Elizabeth I. Yes, she's a classic example. I mean, there were, I think there were up to 50 assassination attempts on her, or certainly early planning. And they ranged from wanting to attack her with armed horsemen when she was out riding to wanting to poison her bedclothes. And luckily, she had extremely capable uh, spy chiefs around her, such as Sir Francis Walsingham, who stopped this happening. And when I wrote Realm, it was about someone coming to London to try and assassinate her with the Spanish Armada. And that wasn't beyond the realms of possibility. And once you add religion into the mix, you're always going to get the monarch as a target for assassination attempts. You really couldn't be a neurotic person. Or if you were a ne neurotic leader, you, you would spend almost all your time in fear of death. Well, that's exactly what King James I did. Uh, you know, it's always been said he spent most of his time in the saddle riding far away from London because he was terrified of two things, the plague and assassination, and he wore an armoured doublet. And this was the time of the appearance of the pocket dag, the wheel-lock pistol, which allowed assassination weapons, other than just a dagger, to be concealed. And it was a real worry. So, so as a good example of that would be William the Silent in 1584. What happened to him? Yeah, William the Taciturn. He certainly would have been a lot more silent had he been assassinated, which he was in the end. Uh, the, the, the first sort of really close assassination attempt that, that, that could have killed him was 1582, and that was at a banquet. And the wheel-lock pistol that went off 
close to his face. It was so close that it set his beard and hair alight, and that helped cauterise the wound that he received. He actually got around through his palate, but he survived that. But he certainly didn't survive what happened to him in 1584, when uh, a French Catholic uh, who was spurred on by both the papacy and by the Spanish, putting a price on uh, William's head because he led the Dutch Protestant resistance against the Spanish and the Low Countries, uh, came and fired three bullets into him, and so he, he died. And this was a period of extraordinary religious tension and religious conflict. I mean, the, the Spanish had the blood councils. They were burning tens of thousands of Dutch at the stake, Dutch Protestants at the stake. So you can see the, the, the sort of tension and why William was so important. And yet these assassins had to be incredibly enthusiastic about their cause because if they were caught, which they almost certainly would, I mean, what would happen to them would be appalling. The assassin of William the Silent was a man called Balthasar Gerard and he was done away with in the most terrible fashion. I mean, they basically decided to make a lesson of him and they tortured him to death. It was extremely brutal. I mean, he was hung on a pole and lashed with a whip. Then his wounds were smeared with honey and a goat was brought in to lick the honey off his skin with his rough tongue. The goat, however, refused. <laughs> don't, don't judge. That's the a, goat that's refused a, to touch his a, body. That's not torture. That's a party. Yeah. Well, this was the pre-torture treatment. This, he wasn't even. <laughs> this was before the torture started. It's a warm-up thing, you know. And he was bound with his hands and feet, so he couldn't sleep in a ball, hung on a pole again, and then he had three hundred pound weights attached to his big toes. Um, Finally, he was fitted with some leather shoes that were too small and they were heated with um, fire and that, that crushed his feet to little lumps. Funny uh, enough, that's quite a medieval torture because one of the things that the, in the Middle Ages they used to do was cover your feet in fat and put it to the fire so your, the meat fell off your feet. So, so yeah, torturing the feet is quite a, quite a, quite a common one. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty brutal. And this is all before he was actually executed. And then the magistrates decreed that his right hand should be burnt off with a red-hot iron, that his flesh should be torn from his bones with pincers in six different places, he should be quartered and disemboweled alive, his heart torn out from his bosom and flung in his face, and finally his head should be taken off. I should think by that moment he was probably very happy to have it removed. Do you think he was thinking, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, so, so so you mentioned earlier James the First and his fear of assassination. But what about George, someone like George the Third? Well, George the Farmer King, he was on the throne for a long time. So again, he was going to attract a bit of attention. The episodes that everyone knows about was firstly 1786 Margaret Nicholson, who attacked him with a pudding knife. So it was pretty half-hearted. Very British. Very British. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if she had some cake as well. But she she She's went in favour of cake and eating it. <laughs> Sorry. But she went for him, and again in true British fashion, he said, "Poor creature, don't don't harm her." And she, she ended up in a lunatic asylum. And uh, she had pretended to present a petition as he alighted from his carriage at St James's Palace. And so many of these assassination attempts at, at 
of British monarchs tend to happen as they're in their carriage or going around Green Park or Hyde Park or St James's Park uh, because they're, they're a sort of moving target. They've been flushed out from their palaces. But, but they're also quite a few of them by, by um, lunatics who, who aren't really you know, politically driven. They're just mad. Yes, and luckily they, they're not very good at aiming either. I mean, in 1800, James Hadfield uh, fired a pistol at George III when he was standing for the national anthem at the Theatre Royal, Drury Lane. And luckily, George III acknowledged the audience and bowed, and the bullet went past him. So he survived, and Hadfield was wrestled to the ground. And he ended up in a lunatic asylum as well. So there were a few attempts. But the big one was really uh, Queen Victoria. She has the record for the number of attempts on her while she was out in her carriage in her lander. Yes, I mean, it was, there were eight attempts while she was, pretty much every time while she was out and about. I mean, if you look at those eight, Tom, there was John Francis, who was considered an, an ill-looking rascal by Prince Albert, and he fired at the Queen. And the Queen and Prince Albert then circled the following day as a moving target to try and draw him out. And he was captured because he fired quite close to them again. There was someone called Robert Pate, who in 1850 actually charged towards the Queen and struck her across the face with a cane. He was a lunatic as well. There was a, a dwarf who tried to fire at her, but it, it turned out he was firing tobacco at her. So... And all the dwarves were then rounded up and inspected and checked against police records. So th th there was this constant worry that the Queen was going to be in the firing line. And I know we like to uh, give Etonians a hard time, but R Roderick MacLean in March 1882, this was the last attempt against Queen Victoria, took a pot shot at her in uh, Windsor. And there were a few boys from the school there to cheer her on and anyway they piled in and, and uh, pummeled him uh, to the ground with their umbrellas before he was taken into custody. You can't beat an umbrella as an offensive weapon. There's a photograph of my brother-in-law's uncle during the war as a schoolboy at Eton poking at an unexploded bomb with his umbrella. Yeah, very useful. <laughs> he survived. <laughs> and then of course we've got our own dear monarch, uh, Queen Elizabeth II and she was attacked in 1981. Yes, luckily the man fired six blanks from his pistol. But I remember that moment because the Queen was on Burmese, her horse. This was at the trooping? Yes, and I remember Prince Charles and Prince Philip coming up either side to cover her. But, I mean, you know, had that been a proper terrorist? And it's extraordinary how, for years, the security of the royals was done in quite a sort of amateurish way. I mean, the Queen had one detective who... I think carried a Smith & Wesson pistol and spent most of his time just carrying her umbrella. So it's certainly become more professional since then because I think the threat has become greater, obviously, and, and world leaders are hugely at risk. Well, if you look at uh, all those attempts that were made against Queen Victoria or other successful ones, such as the killing of the Archduke, um, it was riding around in open-top landers that was the most dangerous thing to be doing, and no wonder they, the president now rides around in that car. What's it called, that great beast of his? The Beast. I think it's called The Beast, isn't it? Yes, I think, I think overall security has been beefed up because, really, they are at risk. 
Excellent. Okay, well, let's take a, a step back in time to ancient Egypt. Well, it just shows that assassination has been around for millennia. You know, you get someone like Teti, the pharaoh, about four and a half thousand years ago, and he was assassinated. Uh, he reigned for about 12 years and then was done in. Uh, and you can see that from the uh, writings and the hieroglyphics that, that are, were around from that period. Uh, and what about the famous Tutankhamun? Well, you always hear these rumours that he was assassinated and struck on the back of the head, and they always bring out some plodding detective on a documentary who goes, I deduce that he was murdered. Well, he probably wasn't. And it all arose, really, from an X-ray that was done on the mummy in 1968, and they saw a piece of his skull was missing and assumed he had been killed by a blow on the back of the head. But I think more recent... Uh, scans have shown that basically the bone fragments inside the skull are actually from vertebrae and probably occurred either when he was being pulled out of his sarcophagus or during the embalming process. But Tutankhamun came from a family that was hugely inbred. I mean, if you look at the collection of the objects that were buried with him, they include quite a few uh, wicker canes that he would have had tried to walk on. Most people assume that he probably was barely able to walk. Uh, he had a broken femur. He could well have died from that. But he was in a parlour state. And that's what comes from generations of people either marrying their sisters or their cousins. His father, Akhenaten, who was the sort of renegade pharaoh who was up against the cult of Amun, the priest cult, and there was a lot of political intrigue and power struggle going on there, he married, one of his wives was Nefertiti, his cousin, and Tutankhamun could well have been the offspring of that. And, and so, yes, had a lot of congenital diseases and deformities. So probably not, or possibly not assassinated, but certainly being a pharaoh in those times, there was a very good chance you were going to be knocked on the head. That's right, and it's really just to show that uh, this threat, this problem of assassination has been evolving over a very long period. All right, well, let's move now forwards. And now we're going to turn our attention to bombs. We've already mentioned bombs and the, the advantage that they're in a fixed location, so you're pretty likely to get your target, or if, if they're there at the time. One of the drawbacks of planting a bomb is that you're more likely to be discovered because it takes a while to get the ingredients of the bomb, to place it, to buy people off, to make sure you can hide undercover. If you take something like the gunpowder plot of 1605, there was Guy Fawkes, a clean skin, unknown to the authorities, who managed to live and survive and go unnoticed as John Johnson in the precincts of the Palace of Westminster for a year. But you can see the sort of difficulty, the logistics involved in creating that situation. There were 36 barrels of gunpowder that had to be brought across in firkin barrels or hoghead barrels and brought across from Robin Catesby's house over in Lambeth, and then stored and disguised. Then that supply of gunpowder was found to have decayed somewhat, so it had to be replaced. So this is the ongoing issue of people who want to assassinate not just the monarch, but take out the entire ruling class. And that's what 
bombs tend to be used for, not just creating an impact and taking out one person, but trying to take down all the advisors, all the councillors, all the courtiers around them. And if you want to know more about the gunpowder plot, please check out episode seven on bloody violent history, because we've done a whole section on that there. Yes, and the gunpowder plot wasn't really the first use of gunpowder. It had been tried before in 1567 against Lord Darnley, the estranged husband of Mary, Queen of Scots, up in Edinburgh. He managed to survive the blast, but was then found dead in the gardens of Kirkerfield House, where he was staying. And he was found there dead with his valet, so he didn't get away. But the house was destroyed by two barrels of gunpowder, which were put under his bedchamber. How he discovered that those things were about to go off or how he got out once the rubble and smoke had cleared no one knows but he didn't get very far so coming into modern times there was a move to the use of new types of explosives yes particularly the move towards nitroglycerine in the 19th century because you could get more bang for your buck you didn't need 36 barrels of gunpowder And if you take the assassination attempt on Tsar Alexander II in 1880, that was a perfect illustration of what explosives could do. There had been many other assassination attempts on the Tsar. Certainly people were loosing off pistols at him from 1866 onwards, whether it was in Paris or on the streets of St. Petersburg. In the Great Exhibition of Paris, a Polish resistance fighter or Polish revolutionary tried to shoot him on the Bois de Boulogne and actually hit the horse instead and his wife, the Tsarina, was covered in blood as a result and Alexander stormed off back to St Petersburg. But this attempt was very serious, the bomb attempt. There was a revolutionary carpenter, he was part of the Narodnia Volia group, Kalturin, who was helping to maintain the palace and work in the palace. And there were so many employees and so many revolutionaries infiltrating the palace. So there was always this this threat of assassination. But he managed to build up a stock of 130 kilograms of nitroglycerine that he hid in a trunk in the dormitory that he shared with other workers. And there were searches of the trunk by the chief of police and by the third section who were the counter-terrorist group of their day, really, in in Russia. And no one found it. I think he was probably had the chief of police in his own pay, the revolutionaries did, and he managed to circumvent that. So there he was. He was almost suffocated by the smell of nitroglycerin. You would have thought the other workers in that dormitory would have smelt it too. In fact, I think the Tsarina had smelt it and commented on the smell, of those explosives, yet no one did anything. And finally, the, the bomb went off, but it went off too early, or rather the guest of the Tsar, who was the Prince of Hesse, was half an hour late, his train arrived late. So the bomb went off, killed dozens of people, and there's a story of how the Nubian guards, the black African guards standing outside the, the destroyed dining room, were covered in white plaster dust. They basically turned into white statues. So it, it was an extraordinary episode, but it was a sign of things to come, of of where things were going. And when you get that level of revolutionary fervour already by that stage, when you get 
philosophers like Mikhail Bakunin, who was preaching anarchy and revolution and revolt, you know you're going to get a lot of assassination attempts. And eventually success. And into the 20th century, let's talk about the one of the assassination attempts against Hitler in 1939. We cover cover this in a lot of detail in the first episode of our podcast, Kill the Fuhrer, but this is relevant to what we're talking about now. It's relevant because, again, you can see the, the sort of level of chance involved and how timings can destroy everything. If you take 1939, Georg Elsa, the communist who, again, was a carpenter, who managed to build a bomb with a very long fuse and put it in the Munich beer keller in which Hitler was due to make an address on November the 8th, 1939. And Hitler left half an hour early because the war was on and he had other commitments. The roof collapsed, the cellar was destroyed... There were many killed, many injured. But again, Hitler showed that unique capacity to escape assassination. And there were others. I mean, we know the July 20th plot of 1944, the Stauffenberg plot. Again, that came very close to killing Hitler. But this time, rather than in a cavity in a pillar, the bomb was in a briefcase. And the leg of the table, the map table on which Hitler was studying the maps, that took most of the blast. And again, there were casualties. Hitler had his eardrums burst by the blast, but he survived. And the Home Army never managed to take over, and the SS managed to regain control. But you mentioned early on in this talk the unintended consequences. And of course, by this time in the war, late part of the Second World War, the Allies were pretty keen to keep Hitler in place. Yes, because, again, you never know who's going to take over. And I said right at the beginning, there's always a bigger bastard waiting in the wings. And had Himmler taken over, it wouldn't have led to any resolution. I no, mean, it might still... have been not just not a bigger bastard, but it might have been someone who was slightly more efficient or effective. And certainly someone who might have ended up killing our prisoners of war, which was what he was planning to do towards the end of the war. And then into modern times, the Brighton Hotel bombing, uh, the Conservative Party conference in Brighton in uh, October 1984. It took a planning. It was Patrick McGee, the IRA man, who had his fingerprints all over the place and was eventually caught with his IRA cell, um, which were planning further attacks. But that certainly was the high watermark of IRA atrocities. It was the most terrible bombing and it never got the figure of Margaret Thatcher that it was planned to get and in fact took out and killed several others, five others, and disabled even more. So it, it was a terrible, terrible blow. But being a democracy, as we said earlier on, you know, there is resilience and redundancy built into the system and the system can survive and the system can go on. And Margaret Thatcher survived. And she was, this was one of the occasions where she showed her mettle and carried on, didn't she? Went back to the conference. She did. It was an amazing performance. And But the resilience of the people caught up in it too was extraordinary. I think Norman Tebbett, when he was at the hospital, was asked before he went 
and before he was put under anaesthetic was asked are you allergic to anything i think his his answer was yes bombs good old sang again yes there you go so we've discussed that killing people in their palaces is a difficult thing to achieve and therefore assassination attempts in the 20th century tended to go for people in their carriages when they are on the move. Yes, and if you take someone like Alexander II, it's a classic example. And we've talked about the rise of the revolutionaries and how uh, Narodny Volya were trying to get him all the time. And one of the most classic examples was really his, the attack on the Tsarist train that was carrying him back from the Crimea in November 1879. And he was a bit annoyed that everything was so slow, so he overtook his bodyguard train, his accompanying train that carried all the guards and soldiers. So he went ahead at Tula, and as he was approaching the outskirts of Moscow, there was a massive bomb blew up, and it missed his train because he was at the front, and it got the train behind that was supposed to be his train, and it actually blew up a carriage that was carrying all the marmalade he was bringing back from the Crimea. He loved Crimean oranges. So. That is a sin, blowing up the marmalade. I have actually made a podcast on marmalade, but... Uh... Not, not for bloody violent history. Do you think anyone came to a sticky ending? <laughs> oh, no. But there was a lot of marmalade spread all over the place. And these terrorists have spent a month and a half tunnelling under the track in order to plant their bomb. This is how committed they were. Uh, this is the level of revolution that was in the air at the time. But eventually, in 1881, March 81, the revolutionaries caught up with Alexander. He was returning to St. Petersburg. He was in his bomb-proof, supposedly bomb-proof carriage that had been presented to him by Louis Napoleon. And there were several bombers carrying their grenades. Originally, the plan was to blow the entire street up, but he took a different route. And what happened is that one of the bombers threw his bomb, it blew the axle off the carriage and the carriage went on another 100 yards. Many people were wounded and the Tsar got out of the carriage and walked back. There was a screaming child, there was a horse that had to be shot because that had been injured and the bomber threw a bomb at him very, from very close quarters, was killed himself and it essentially blew the legs off Alexander II. He was mortally wounded. Uh, no one put a tourniquet on him I think by that stage it was too far too far gone and he was put on a Cossack sledge because you know there were bodyguards accompanying on sledges both police and Cossack bodyguards and he was taken back to the Winter Palace which was very close members of his family actually heard the attack including his grandson uh, who later became Nicholas II who was 14 at the time and he bled out you know, by the time he had really reached the palace, so he, he didn't survive that one. And, of course, we know that the, the Tsar, at the time of the Russian Revolution, Nick, Nicholas II, he was murdered, not assassinated. Yes, it certainly wasn't bolt from the blue. He and his family were already ca held ha captive, and eventually at the House of Special Purpose in Ekaterinburg. That's got a grim name. 
sounding name, isn't it? It's classically Soviet, isn't it? The house's special purpose. But eventually he and his five children and four retainers were taken down into a basement, told to wait, told that they were going to be transported. By this stage, the white Russian army were approaching, so something had to be done with them. And the killers came in and murdered them, firstly with pistols, but of course the uh, the corsets of the daughters were transporting the jewels, which caused the bullets to ricochet. So eventually the entire family and the retainers were finished off with bayonets and rifles. There was one story of the maid running upward and down against the wall, trying to stave off the bayonet blows with a pillow before she, she fell to the final blow it was it was horrendous complete bloodshed how did they find out about this was a record taken or was this just a forensics no there were records and accounts made and people were captured so it did leak out eventually what had happened but it was the most horrendous murder but of course it wasn't the lightning strike that had hit alexander the second no, but I suppose the danger was that if the white Russians had managed to recapture the Tsar, they would have got their figurehead back, and that was what the Soviets were worried about. The yes, Bolsheviks. So, so the Bolsheviks were terrified of that, so the, the, the order was given. Well, we've mentioned Hitler already, but he was uh, attacked in his motorcade on a number of occasions. Yes, and they never worked. The, the first that people really talk about is Maurice Baveau, the Swiss theology student who tried to take him out in a motorcade in 1938. But there were so many people going Sieg Heil and getting in the way that that failed. The following year, there were Polish army officers who tried to kill him with a £1,000 bomb during a victory parade in Warsaw. But the route was tra- changed and... It never happened, so he got away from that one. Later on in 1943, in Smolensk, there was another potential attack on Hitler, but the security was too great. So you can see all these variables at play, too many bodyguards, people getting in the way, route changes, and that makes the assassination of an individual on the open road or even on a train quite tricky. So you go from people identifying a weakness like motorcades or carriages and then the other side, the security forces and so on, working out means by which they can stop these assassinations happening and you end up with a sort of armour-plated limousine. Yes, and changing route is always the best way of avoiding it. You know, This happened to Tsar Alexander II before he was killed and again it then happened to... Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914. It was really a chance encounter that ended up with his life being taken. Yes, well, as you've mentioned, uh, Archduke Ferdinand, I think we should have a quick word about him, what happened to him. Well, that, again, was chance. He, He was there on a civic visit to Sarajevo with his wife, Sophie. There were 17 Serbian nationalists as the hardcore members of this group who wanted to kill... Uh, Franz Josef and uh, take a blow at the Austro-Hungarian Empire but things went wrong initially and one of them threw a bomb at the six-car motorcade it bounced off the hood of the car the open top car that was carrying Franz Josef and his wife and that exploded under the car behind Franz Josef 
went later to the hospital to see those who had been injured. And that was when Prinkett, the revolutionary, went forward. You know, he had been bemoaning what had happened. He was sitting in a calf, and suddenly this car drew up outside. So he went out, uh, drew his pistol, and fired at the archduke and, and his wife. And he hit her in the abdomen with a bullet. He hit Franz Josef in the neck, and both died. Neither of them were wearing the bulletproof vests with which they were provided for such an occasion. I think those vests are now in a museum. But maybe it would have saved them. It certainly probably would have saved uh, the Archduchess. I believe that the Serbs, because uh, the reason this assassination is famous is is that it heralded the start of the First World War and that some of them felt a sense of, uh, of guilt but there is an argument to say that this was just a, a catalyst or a point in time and that the First World War was going to happen anyway. The, the tensions were already there. The, the tectonic plates had shifted. So I think war was inevitable at that stage. But it certainly was one of the fuses and the one that everyone focuses on. But it just shows that, that an assassination can have the most profound effect. Princip is seen as a bit of a Serbian hero, but he had the most terrible end. Uh, He was stuck in jail for the rest of the war and in 1918 eventually died from the effects of tuberculosis, weighing about six stone. Well, we know that Hitler was never assassinated in his motorcade, but there was a successful attempt on a Reinhard Heydrich. The consequences were perhaps predictable but they went in a direction that I think that even the British who had trained the SOE team to go into Prague could never have really foreseen could never have really comprehended given the rage of Hitler after the attack Reinhard Heydrich was Reich Protector SS he was really de facto in charge of Bohemia and Moravia basically Czechoslovakia. He was sort of Himmler's number two, was he? He was, and Himmler was quite jealous of him, actually, and one of the reasons that Heydrich was sort of put out there was to to get out from under Himmler's feet. And he had been the architect, really, of the final solution with Adolf Eichmann. He had chaired the Vansay conference on the final solution. So he was a truly bad number, but he was heading back to Berlin for a meeting with Hitler, so he was in his open-top car, and it leaves you very vulnerable. So he was in the suburb of Leuven, turning onto the road, heading for Berlin, when suddenly two attackers appeared. These were SOE-trained Czech partisans. One of them fired a Sten gun, Gabczyk fired a Sten gun, that jammed. So Heydrich was unscathed from that, and he tried to confront the partisan, but another partisan, Cubist, stepped forward and threw an anti-tank grenade, and that is what mortally wounded Heydrich. Uh, he got sort of bits of fender and seat in him, you know, had damaged lungs from the whole thing, was carted off in a delivery van to the local hospital, where he eventually died from sepsis. Hitler was outraged by this, ordered the arrest and killing of 10,000 Czechs, but was persuaded this would undermine the Nazi war effort. So eventually the SS went out and killed 
up to 1,200 uh, Czech civilians wiped out the town of Lidice, for example. It was a terrible moment. Those partisans who were part of the SOE group, they took refuge in a cathedral, St Cyril's, and were eventually killed in the basement. They they killed themselves, actually. The SS tried to flood them out, gas them, use flamethrowers, you name it. But those partisans held out and then finally killed themselves. But the aftermath of that assassination was, was terrible. And among the deaths were women who were sent to the local hospital for forced abortions. There were almost 100 children sent to a death camp and killed in gas vans. So the Nazis had their revenge. Did that mean that the uh, SOE changed their policy on bumping off the opposition? or They certainly thought hard about it, and I think it definitely affected their policies in France and elsewhere because they knew that there would be reprisals. There always were reprisals whenever there was a partisan attack that had done damage to the Nazi cause. You, you see later on what happened to French villages after the attacks, the delaying tactics on the Das Reich division as it headed up towards the Normandy beaches. And talking about unforeseen consequences, what about the death of an American president? Well, we think of the 60s as being an era of peace and love and everything else and hippiedom, but actually there was a great deal of violence during that period and assassinations and JFK and Bobby Kennedy, his brother, are really so symptomatic and emblematic of that time. What went on in... November 22nd, 1963. It was a key moment in 20th century history. Um, They always say, you know what you were doing when Kennedy was shot. Well, it was six days before my first birthday, so I didn't know what was going on. I'm sure it was something terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Okay. But, you know, there's so much conspiracy has grown up. And I, and I think this is from the 60s onwards. The conspiracy theories have grown up around any sort of violent act, any sort of moment uh, that has happened since then. I, it, it really goes back to the whole JFK assassination. What is extraordinary is the distance from that sixth floor of the book depository in Dallas, where Lee Harvey Oswald was, to the head of the president of the United States was only about 81 metres. The car was travelling at about 11 miles an hour. And it wasn't a difficult shot. Anyone could have taken that shot. The the public, I think it says that 80% of the public who were there that day heard three shots. But it's not difficult for an expert marksman. And Lee Harvey Oswald was an expert marksman. It really isn't too much of a challenge to take a shot of 250 or so feet. Yeah, I'm uh, glad you cleared up the imperial versus metric. Yes, it's around that level. It's around that figure. But you know th- that is not difficult. I mean, what's so ironic is that the first lady of Dallas, Nellie Connolly, turned to him and said, Mr. President, you can't deny the people of Dallas love you. And apparently his reply was, no, you certainly can't. And those were probably his last words. But it was a shattering blow for the American political scene and for democracy as a whole. 
he wasn't the only president to be assassinated and also there were many assassination attempts and have been many assassination attempts against various presidents. I mean, Abraham Lincoln is another very famous case. That was a shattering blow for America, uh, certainly for the Union. You know, it was a period when bodyguards, when the art of protecting your principal was in its infancy and apparently his bodyguard was pretty good but had the day off, the replacement was probably a drunk and certainly liked to sleep a lot. So no one was around when John Wilkes Booth crept into the box at the Ford's Theatre and shot Lincoln in the back of the head. He was hoping to get General Grant as well, but General Grant was away. But that was a terrible moment and there was a guest of Lincoln's, Major Rathbone, who actually grappled with Booth and was stabbed for his pains, and Booth managed to get away, but a couple of weeks later was shot in a shootout in a Virginia farmstead. But you know, that, that's the sort of thing that can happen, uh, just like the attempted assassination of George III in the Theatre Royal Drury Lane in 1800. It's always a problem when you've got a key figure with a public profile out in the limelight. And you mentioned the violence of the 60s. And, of course, the other very famous assassination was that of Dr Martin Luther King. Just as revolution stalked the czars in the 19th century, so the 1960s in America was a time of political convulsion and upheaval and a great deal of tension. And the civil rights movement was going on, the anti-Vietnam War movement was going on, so you got all these conflicts, and I think being a, a democratic figure or a political figure was always going to put you in the line of fire. And Martin Luther King was in the line of fire, and the person who took him down with a Remington was James Earl Ray in April 1968 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. As a friend of mine said, that's the kind of calibre I use for hunting bears. I mean, it was a very powerful bullet, and it was one shot, and he was killed. And he ended up being cradled, I think, by Jesse Jackson. And the killer... Was he killed with a handgun? or a... With a sniper rifle, with, oh. a, with, a, with a rifle. And, you know, but it was, wasn't a, a difficult shot. I mean, you have a static figure on a balcony, and, and you are... A sitting target and the killer was eventually caught at Heathrow Airport and deported back to the United States. I think he was trying to get to South Africa but again you know, this was a, a really difficult period and 1968 might have seen the summer of love but there was a lot of other stuff going. And the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther, I mean both those people uh, became martyrs, became more famous and more sort of successful in their, after their deaths. Yes, if you take someone like JFK, he was going to be involved in a quagmire of political controversy later on in the same way that his successors were. But he died having basically won the showdown with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the legend of Camelot survived and thrived after his death. So many American presidents have been the target of assassination uh, it's fortunate that more of them haven't been killed, uh, but some of them have been wounded, Theodore Roosevelt, for example, and, of course, in March 1981, 
Ronald Reagan. Good old Ronnie. I remember when he was taken to the hospital and he I think he said to the surgeon as he was about to go under for his operation, uh, please tell me you're a Republican. He, he just had a, lit, a litany of jokes that he came up with. And I think he said to Nancy Reagan, his wife, honey, I forgot to duck when she came to see him. So he was folksy, but he was great. And he survived. And uh, he, and he, he survived the bullet of John Hinckley Jr. Yes, he did. And and other presidents had very close shaves. Uh, you know, Gerald Ford was almost gunned down on several occasions. So there, there were two women in particular who came very close to taking him out with pistols and were sort of basically pummeled to the ground or the guns didn't go off. But it was pretty close shave. And what about the aeroplane dive-bombing the White House? Yes, I think he was some sort of hick, redneck, drunk trucker who got hold of a light aircraft and crashed into a tree in the grounds of the White House. So it wasn't 9-11, but it was certainly an attempt, I suspect, on the president's life. So the 60s were a violent time, and not only were there individuals trying to bump off leaders, but governments attempted mass assassination, such as in Vietnam and Operation Phoenix. Yes, that was an attempt by the CIA to undermine and destroy the political infrastructure of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. And it wasn't exactly a hearts and minds campaign. It was a serious attempt to take down the opposition. And in many respects, it worked. But if the people you're up against have a lot of manpower and that is not going to be their weakest link, then attacking it is not going to lead to the response, the reaction, the result that you actually want. So Operation Phoenix didn't work in the long term, as we know. It lasted from 1965 to about 1972. There were about 85,000, 86,000 opposition neutralised, and that included arrests. And of those, about 26,000 were killed, were assassinated. It was mostly done by CIA operatives and by US Special Forces. And they would go into villages, identify through informants and those that they had lifted from the villages who would identify the houses in which Viet Cong commissars and politicos and headsheds were living or had moved into the area. And then they were taken out. So there's always a story that people would knock on the door and shout, April Fool, motherfucker, and then throw in a grenade or just shoot the person they came across. But there were plenty of incidents in which torture was involved, in which people were disappeared, and rape and torture was used. And it wasn't a particularly edifying moment in intelligence and special forces operations. But the US was pretty desperate with their South Vietnamese allies to try and stem the flow and the influence of the Viet Cong. The South Vietnamese took over the program, they called it the F6 program, which was essentially continuing with a sort of murder campaign against opponents. But it was never going to save a regime that was corrupt, disliked, despised and imploding. So much for the summer of love. 
Well, Jamie, have you got a PS before we come to a close? We do have a PS, Tom, and it's Lucretia Borgia, because the Borgias really encapsulate that 15th, 16th century Renaissance thing of Machiavellian diplomacy and murder. And she has always been identified as someone who went around with poison and a ring, dropping it into people's cars. But I think she's been wrongly vilified and attacked and condemned for her behaviour. It was probably her father, the Pope, and her brother who went around killing people. Certainly there was a lot of arsenic involved and people being found dead in the Tiber floating face down. She had three marriages. Her first husband did a runner before he was murdered. Second husband was murdered. The lover that she had was found floating in the river with a manservant. So there was a lot of murder going along and people talked of incest and the banquet of chestnuts and there was this constant sort of background, this background noise of scandal and unpleasantness and assassination. But I think she's been wronged by history and certainly her third husband, Ferrara, was a good husband. She had many children and apparently she had a reputation for piety so maybe she came to it late but she turned into a good person in the end well next you'll be sticking up for livia in ancient rome and that she wasn't poisoning everyone to get her son tiberius to be the roman emperor so it's murder 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 that's a wrap thank you jamie thanks tom so it goes my name is tom ashton his name is james jackson you can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.